Amen. Well, happy Easter Sunday. Um, I decided to dress up today. I dress up at weddings and on Easter Sunday. So um, hopefully you're, you're blessed by that. If you come next week, I won't look like this. And so if you dress up too, you can dress up continually year-round or just go once a year like me. All right. Well, my name is Tyler Harding, the lead pastor here at Antioch. And again, if you're new with us or a guest, we just want to say welcome and glad that you're joining us for this celebratory day. Um, you know, Easter is about God's fulfillment of his great rescue plan. He had a great rescue plan since time began, since he created the heavens and the earth and creation and people, and since Adam and Eve fell into sin and they chose to disobey and rebel against God, he's had a plan in the works. And Easter weekend, this is the culmination of that plan that we celebrate each year. Well, we're in week two of a series we just kicked off last week, studying the book of Romans. And last week, we kicked the series off called The Gospel of Power, and we looked at Romans chapter one. And Romans chapter one, I wouldn't say is like the most encouraging chapter in the Bible. If you've never read it before, I would encourage you to read it, um, and uh, it's very sobering. And so what we talked about is that in Romans chapter one, and again, to give you a little bit of context, Romans is a letter in the Bible, and it's a book of the Bible, and it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul back to Christians who lived in Rome, right? And so Rome was the, what was the epicenter, was the capital of the Roman Empire. Many historians would say that Rome was actually the greatest uh, nation, civilization that ever existed on the planet, even more so than the Greeks and anyone else. And so Rome was this amazing kind of picture of worldly power. Politically, militarily, other enemies just didn't have a chance against Rome when they were at full strength. And they would go in, they would literally conquer towns and cities, and they would Romanize them, everything from language to their religion. They would set up their own pagan temples and cults and different uh, idols. They would, they would implement different <clears throat> Roman leaders, political leaders. They would, they would change the way education was done. The Romans came in, and they were the most powerful thing on the earth. And what's great about God is he chose to send his son Jesus in the midst of the greatest world power we've ever known, he sends Jesus at that time to show the world there's actually a greater power, but it looked a lot different. See, the Romans would ride in on their war horses, but Jesus, on Palm Sunday, we celebrated last Sunday, he rode in on a donkey. Not real threatening. I guess they can bite you or kick, but you don't ride in on a donkey if you're looking for trouble. He rode in as the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. He rode to Jerusalem to a little different tune than what they were used to seeing for kings and leaders. When they rode into Jerusalem, they rode in a little differently. Jesus was very different. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul unpacks this idea of the fact that there is something called the wrath of God, right? You want to make a t-shirt out of that? Hey, wrath of God. I'll be your friend. No, you're not going to make any friends that way. The wrath of God is something, not something that we would like to talk about, but it's real, actually. And Paul goes on to say, he says, look, the wrath of God is coming against our sin. And so if you sin, then guess what? The wrath of God is coming for you. And that really, that there's no way out of it except by doing things his way. There's only one way to get that sin off. There's only one way for that wrath of God to literally not destroy you, but it's on his terms. Because we are unrighteous because of our sin, but God makes a way for us to be made righteous. <clears throat> and we talked about how many times we will suppress the truth. Paul writes about how people actually knew that God existed in some way, shape, or form. He actually makes a statement that they are without excuse, meaning that people all over the world 
all over the world are without excuse knowing that they can actually recognize there is a creator God somewhere, somehow. If you think about it this way, God created us in his image. If you believe that God created us, that we didn't come from something else, we came from God, therefore his image, his, his marks, his fingerprints are all over us. Meaning that there's something inside of us that is drawn back to God, even though we replace that with other things. The Israelites are a great example. You read in the Old Testament how they would worship God and they would worship an idol, a golden calf or a, or a pile of rocks or some tree. Even people all over the world will worship something because you know what? We were made to worship. God created us as worshipful beings. The problem is, is that that's what we're created for. Everyone worships something. But a lot of times they dismiss worshiping the one true God. And so in Romans here, Paul says, look, they started suppressing the truth and what they knew, and then it led them into these things, and then it got so bad, not only are people just sinning, but actually people were approving of the sin, disgusting, detestable things that even would make our stomachs turn, and all of a sudden, he's saying, this is how it's gotten. It's gotten so bad. It's gotten so wicked to this point. That's the unrighteousness we're talking about. And then Romans 2, Paul continues kind of laying on pretty thick to these Christians in Rome. This is a letter written to Christians in Rome, and he's laying on pretty thick, saying, hey, guys, um, just in case you didn't hear in the first part of this letter, the second part is that, yes, you're still wicked. Uh, yeah, you still have, yeah, you're still messed up, and that actually, no, none of you are that good. And so Paul shares this, and he makes it clear that we are all dirty. We're all in the same stinky, smelly, wicked ship, and you know what? You smell. Sin smells, you know, and we can try to cover it up. We're good at that. Right? As Americans, we like to, we can be fashionable. We got all sorts of perfumes and colognes. I know what it's like to get out of the gym, and you're thinking, wow, like that doesn't smell good. And no, my wife's not giving me a hug right now. She'll give me a, like a wink. I love you from a distance, you know. And I just want to say, guys, our sin, our sin reeks. That's what it's like. It's like you're coming out of the gym nice and sweaty. It's like, ugh, just, it reeks. It reeks, but we try to mask it, right? We try to cover it up. But God actually isn't fooled by anything. He's not tricked by it. Now, we can cover it up with people. We're pretty good at that, right? We're pretty, as someone like, we're in the South, right? So someone says, hey, how are you doing? Doing great. Right? Anyone ever said that? I have, I'll be honest. Hey, I, I'm, I'm doing good. It's like, what is, I'm, I'm doing horrible, actually. I'm not doing good. But can I say that? Is it okay to say I'm not doing well? You know, like, we like to mask who we are, our emotions, but God isn't fooled by any of that. It actually says in the scriptures, he sees right to the heart. He cuts to the heart of the matter. So that's why he can say, and Paul's writing this letter again, inspired by God, written by the hands of Paul, and saying, hey, guess what? You guys are all wicked, no matter how you look. I just want to say, if you came today dressed up, or you came today dressed down, if you've got a nice man scruff, or a groomed beard, or you're clean shaven, right? If you're addicted to something, or you're experimenting with something, no matter what it is, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what you look like, you're all in the same boat, which is unrighteous, unacceptable. Not okay, not right to be in God's presence apart from Jesus, apart from his rescue plan. So once to turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, this we're going to pick it up in verse 10 through 18. So let me ask the question, what is God to do with our sin? Like what is God going to do about our unrighteousness? And Paul answers that question here in Romans 3 verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. 
Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, in case you're thinking, wow, Paul seems like a little choppy here. Well, he's pulling from about six or seven different passages from the Old Testament and quoting them right here in this passage. Psalm 14, 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Wow. That's an indictment, isn't it? God's looking out from heaven. He's looking. Hey, there's a billion people down there. Right right now there's seven billion people. All right, there's got to be a nice guy somewhere. And there's got to be a young lady who's just so squeaky clean and perfect and everyone's best friend has never done anything. Where are they? Nowhere. Don't exist. He goes on in Psalm 36.1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. There's a theme here, which is humanity needs to understand um, your works and your efforts will never be good enough. You know, part of this passage here in verse 13, it says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And then verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Personally, that hits me pretty deep. Um, when I was 16 years old, going into my junior in high school, um, I was raised in a, in, a, in a great family, in a Christian home, and mom and dad are still married, and, and we were plugged into the church, but I'd grown a little critical, um, just in nature, towards people, and I'd grown a little cynical, and so how it looked was I, was, uh, I would oftentimes curse and make fun of people underneath my breath. Now, I wouldn't say this stuff out loud a lot of times, because I knew I'd get beat up, you know, and so I would just make fun of people. I'd sit back in class, be like, that girl's an idiot, you know? Or look at that person and be like, man, he looks weird. Yeah, 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 this, this is me. Do you want me to go on? I, I can go a little deeper here. So, um, but I literally would curse and criticize the majority of people I encountered. But I actually had a great family. It's not their fault. What happened was that I allowed sin to get into my life. I didn't deal with it. I stuffed it. A few things stung me along the way in school and in life and Someone told somebody that I liked some girl when I did, and then I got all my feelings hurt in fifth grade, and then something happened in seventh grade, and then some coach told me it wasn't good enough, and then something happened, and then whatever, I prayed, and God answered that prayer how I liked it when I wanted it, and all of a sudden, this little bitterness and stuff started festering, building up, and here I'm at 16 years old, and just like a cursing machine, and um, I came to this place where I felt depressed. I felt lonely. I didn't feel right. I didn't have friends, obviously. Like, you're going to be my best friend? Hey, bro, thanks for cursing me. It's great. Uh, let's hang out more. No. Right? Like, hey, dinner for seven. Everyone come and complain and whine and make fun of each other. Let's hang out with that group. No, that's not. But that's who I was, guys. I, mean, I literally was more or less friendless outside of a few merciful people that actually put up with me. And so there I was. I went to this. I, I drove my truck at the time, and, um, and I drove to this little place that kind of looked over this, this lake in Austin. And I went there by myself at night, and I was wrestling, guys. I was like, God, I know what's going on. I read your Bible. I know what's going on. I'm obviously not following a lot of it, but I'm here, and I feel terrible. I feel miserable. What am I doing? I don't have any friends. What is going on? And I was at a desperate point. You know what God said to me? 
This is the first time I could tell you in my life that I really sensed God's voice speaking to me. And I didn't hear him audibly, but I sensed him in my heart. I, just, I knew he was saying something to me. And this is what he said. He said, Tyler, if you'll stop blessing people, I mean, if you'll stop cursing people and start blessing people, I will bless you. That's it. And I was like, oh, okay. Now, if you know me, it doesn't take a lot to just turn me. When God speaks to me, it's like, okay, we're there. I don't need like a 10-day waiting period to like turn it. We just turned it, okay? And so I realized, oh, wait a second. God loves me, and God loves us. He has amazing plans for us. There's a little catch, which is if you obey me, then you'll get to experience all the amazing stuff I have for you, right? So let me just give you the counseling tip for all of our friends and family. If someone's struggling, just say, hey, are you obeying God today? That's where you start. Not, let me help you. No, no, are you obeying God? Because if you obeyed God, the Bible's really clear, you actually get blessed. But when you disobey him, when you point the finger at everybody else, complain, you see, at my point in my life, I actually would just point the finger at other people, right? Our country has a difficulty owning responsibility as, as like individuals. Well, it's not my fault. It's my parents. I mean, they got divorced, and so whatever. Or, hey, it's not my fault. This kid brought me, or this person brought the drugs to me. I didn't want it. Or this deal, or this teacher, or this coach, or you don't understand where I grew up, or what about this? Or what about our president, the past president, the future president, right? I mean, what about, it's all their fault, right? It's everybody else's fault. My sin is their fault. Paul's speaking of that so clearly in Romans 1 and 2 and here in 3 of like, it ain't anyone else's fault. Your fault. It's your sin. God's saying, I peeked down to heaven looking to find someone and nobody. They're all wicked. They're all messed up. They're all unrighteous. Which means it doesn't matter how good any of you think you are, you're actually terrible. Isn't that an encouraging word today? Right? He's trying to make the point that, look, if you think you were like a good person, you're like a good person bank account, I just depleted it. Just now. I just took it all. Took all that money out of there. Because, man, apart from Jesus, <laughs> we're, we're sunk. You know, um, in college, I was a construction science major. We got any cosine majors? Hey, whoop. Okay, thanks. <laughs> You'll recognize a construction science major on campus, at least you used to, because our backpacks are full of these ginormous blueprints. We have to carry around and, like, use all semester. It's like our baby. We have to take care of them. And so I was in estimating class. And uh, at the time, we had these spreadsheets, and you had to do a whole takeoff on a set of construction plans and, you know, how much uh, concrete and steel and roofing and materials and labor and all this. You do this huge, it's like this, it's like this semester-long project, okay? So we get to the end of it, and I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, I have worked. You stay up late. You're a cosign major. You're up late at that place, just working hard on these numbers. And I remember getting this project done. I turn out, I double-checked, triple-checked all my work. I'm thinking, man, I nailed it. I nailed this estimated class. Turn it in. A week later, get the report back. I got a C minus, which I think actually was a D. I think he helped me out a little bit. And I was devastated. I'm thinking, what? I double-checked. I mean, Excel doesn't lie. I mean, I did the equation. It what? And I was so sure of it. And then I stepped back and looked at other projects, and the professor, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was off. But in the moment, I was like, no, I had it right. Isn't that us, though? In the moment when we, it's just our perspective, hey, I'm doing that right. And then somebody's like, dude, you look a little crooked. What? I'm not crooked. I feel fine. Uh, you look a little angry. I'm not angry. I just look like this all the time. That's the problem. Okay, yeah, you're not angry. You're happy. I mean, you know, but I mean, that's how we are, isn't it? It's like, well, I don't, uh, don't you tell me what's wrong with me and what's wrong with you. Right? And so that's called pride, which is sin. So therefore, you all just sin, right? If you ever had that thought. 
It's like, oh, you don't know any better. It's like, actually, listen, listen to people, right? Because they actually see stuff in our lives a little bit. You know, um, the whole world, the whole world, what Paul's saying here in verse 10 through 18 is, is accountable to God. The whole world, every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Now, it's going to get a little better just a minute, so hang on with me before you exit the pews here, okay? So Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, wow, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now this is really important, because you have to remember, this is a letter written to the Roman Christians, okay, and the entire letter to this point is focusing in on sin, unrighteousness our need to be saved, it's a pretty depressing letter at this point, right? And so if you're sitting here and you think if you were a person receiving this letter 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote it to the Romans, they got delivered, and they're sitting in their little small group at their house. Hey, so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Let's read it. Like, wow, this is horrible. No one's, after the first, after the first five minutes, everyone's crying. It was like, we're all going to die. The wrath of God is coming. We're wicked. You're wicked. We're all, oh my God, this is horrible. So imagine, I mean, this is like a bad letter to start with. But then he's going to turn the corner here in just a moment. Now, I want you to understand what he says here about the law, right? He says, now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole, whole world may be held accountable to God. What he's saying is no one, no one gets out of this thing. Everyone is in the laser sights focus of God's wrath because of what they have done. The sin attracts the wrath of God, right? And so here we are, and he's talking about the law. Now, let me describe it this way. Um, some of you know that we started building our house several months ago. We're almost finishing it up, praise Jesus. And, um, you know, when my framers left, I noticed a few things were missing. So instead of calling them back and paying them more money, I just thought, hey, I could do it, right? There's YouTube and you know, if you remember Home Improvement, Al Borland back in the day, he kind of taught you how to do stuff. And so, you know, I thought I could do a little framing, so I got some gear, and I went up there, and it was late at night one night. I had my cell phone, thankfully, with a little LED lighting to kind of help me. And uh, there was this part where this duct was coming down, this AC duct was coming down, and I had to build this little fur down wood thing around it, okay? So a little complicated, uh, but I thought I could do it. So there I am, and I'm measuring. I'm thinking, oh, I got this, and I'm looking at it. Can I step back a little bit? Yeah, it looks pretty good. And, you know, so we get done. I'm looking at it, and I'm, hey, it looks pretty good. Well, the sheetrock guys come, and here's the deal with walls. You don't know they're crooked until the sheetrock gets on. Okay, so the sheetrock gets on, and I'm up there, and I'm walking up the steps, and I'm like, wait a second. It looks straight when I look at it like this, you know, but <laughs> this is awesome. I'm getting ashy. Ash, what is it? That's a little crooked. Like, okay, don't tell anybody. Maybe they won't notice. You know, just it'll be our little secret. I got this crooked little thing here, okay? Now, up close, it looked straight. It looked great. But you know, in construction, there's this thing called a plumb line. A plumb line is actually a string that has a little metal weight thing on the bottom of it. And the point of it is to, the, the plumb line actually doesn't fix your building. It actually tells you what's off in your building. So like a plumb line in construction actually tells you, hey, that's crooked, that's off. So you think about the law, think about the word of God here. It's to tell you what's crooked and what's off. You look at the plumb line, it's like, so again, that's what we say. We're trying to align our lives with God. The plumb line is God. Like, he's the plumb line. It's like, this is how we do marriage. This is how we do family. This is how we do finances. This is how we treat people. This is how we ask for forgiveness. This is how we deal in business. This is how we do stuff. And so the plumb line is God, not our cultural ideas, not your best idea because you were just born, you think now you've got a new idea about how to do life. 
your idea is wrong, right? Because God, if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you say, hey, he's actually the authority, not me, right? And so if you choose to step into that place of authority, you're stepping in and saying, now I'm God. And God, you can adhere to my way of thinking and my ideas and what I feel and think, right? But, but when you say, no, 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 hold on, the word of God here, it's the plumb line. All of a sudden, you can then decide, oh, that is off. Wow. Screaming at your wife every other day is actually not biblical. So let's cut that out. Not because I just want to play nice, but actually God's saying, no, we need to honor and love and respect. And okay, Lord, I need to get online with you. Is it making sense? So here Paul's saying this law helps us to correct us, right? It helps to correct us. We're accountable to God means that everyone is under the judgment and liable to punishment. When you're accountable, accountable for your actions, you're liable, like that judgment's coming, um, and there's usually punishment associated with that. That's called judgment on us. But at this point, as I said, you're reading this letter, you're here, and you're thinking, wow, this is pretty discouraging, but it's about to get really good. Because the first, Romans chapter 1 all the way to verse, uh, verse 20 in Romans 3, it's pretty discouraging, but hopefully eye-opening. And hopefully you're sitting here thinking, man, I still think I'm a great person. I don't know what to tell you, but you're not. Okay, so that's what the Word of God says, and everyone's in that category. But here he says here in verse 21, we're going to turn the corner here. You're going to say, although you now know that there's nothing you can do to be right or to be good, here's, here, here's the good news. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as appropriation for his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let me unpack this here for just a moment. Because this is why we're all gathered here today, isn't it? We're gathered here to celebrate this portion, not the first three parts. This portion, this is the good news. But if you don't understand that, this actually isn't even any news to you. Right? Have you ever talked to someone who said, well, what do I need saving from? If you don't know what you need saving from, you actually can't be saved. You actually have to know, oh, I actually need help. Right? Like Christianity is not self-help. It's Jesus' help. Right? There's no self-help Christianity because that means you actually don't know that you need help. And actually thinks, and that mentality means that actually my good cannot weigh my bad and therefore I'll find God in the midst of it somehow, some way. But here Paul makes it clear, God sent his son Jesus the one to come to save us. So justification. There's a few big words here I want to unpack for just a moment. Justification, right? That's a big word. That means declared not guilty but righteous by God. When you're justified, you're declared not guilty, right? It'd be like in a court ruling, the prosecution, the defense, not guilty. Not guilty. Those are great words. And made righteous by God. The redemption. This is what Jesus came to redeem us. Now, this is actually pulled from the Old Testament. If you remember the story of the Israelites in captivity, in slavery, underneath Pharaoh and Egypt and their rule, and you know about the ten plagues, these crazy plagues that happened. Well, plagues one through nine happened, and Pharaoh's still like, I'm not letting your people go. They are a bunch of free labor, and I'm going to use them, and we're going to control them, and I don't care what you do. And then the last plague comes, and it's too much for them, and the last plague 
more or less, God spoke to Moses and said, hey, I want you to tell your people to do something because it's about to get real bad around here. And so Moses goes to the people and says, hey, here's what we've got to do. Tonight, tonight's the night. God's going to set us free. Here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to take a lamb. You're going to take a white as snow, perfect, clean lamb, the best one you got. You're going to take that lamb. You're actually going to kill that lamb in your house. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb. You're actually going to smear it on the doorpost outside of your home. Because later on tonight, the angel of the Lord is going to come and literally kill every firstborn that is in Egypt and murder them tonight as punishment, as a consequence for the sins and the grip of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And if that blood is not over your door, then the angel of the Lord will not pass over your door and will come for your son also. And so there they were that night, these families, millions of them, killing lambs, spreading the blood in faith that God will protect them and will spare their children. Well, God did. And it was looking forward to see that Jesus one day would become the Passover lamb. That one day at the same time of the year that they celebrate this very event, Jesus would come and would be the final Passover lamb. Because in the Old Testament, they actually had to sacrifice every year. Keep sacrificing. Keep, okay, my sins taken care of for 2017, but now in 2018, let's get ready for that again. But what God said, hey, I'm going to send someone to do it all for the past, present, and future. That's the redemption we're talking about. But the shedding of blood is necessary in order to spare us from the wrath of God. Propitiation came to the word right. God's righteous anger and wrath needed to be satisfied. That's what it is. It needed to be satisfied. It wasn't dismissed, and that's important to understand. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't that God just said, hey, guys, all your sins, no big deal. We're good. Um, Because here's what you understand about, about the cross. Yes, the Romans were the ones who actually drove nails into his wrists and into his feet and hung him up on the cross in their crucifixion manner the way they did it. <clears throat> now, I don't know. I obviously wasn't there, but here's what I would argue. I think what was more painful than the actual physical abuse and treatment he received from the crown on his head to the stripes on his back, what was more painful was actually incurring the full wrath of God. What you need to know about Jesus dying on the cross is that he actually took the wrath of God that was intended to you, the wrath that actually is so powerful, it will kill you. It will destroy you. And so God said, I'm going to send my only son to literally take on my complete wrath. Because if Jesus didn't take it, it's coming for us. And anyone who doesn't confess the name of the Lord, anyone doesn't say, you know what, I need Jesus to stand in the gap for me too, that wrath's coming for them. That's why the gospel is really good news. Do you ever wonder that? Why do they call it good news? It's because the wrath of God is coming to destroy you, to destroy your family. To des- the sin, it attracts the wrath of God. But when Jesus stands in the gap and says, no, I will take it for them, then that wrath goes to Jesus. And then guess what? God looks over Jesus' shoulder and says, oh, you're righteous now. You're clean you got out of the wicked boat because my son's blood is all over you. And he cleansed you. And I demanded a sacrifice. I demand because I'm a holy, just, perfect, righteous God. Someone has to pay the price. I'm not dismissing it. You have to pay the price. And Jesus, you know that song we sing? Jesus paid it all. Why do we sing that? Because he paid for all of it. He paid for all of it. He didn't pay for some of it. He didn't just pay for like the nice Americans. 
but the really bad ones, he didn't pay for them. Or the people out of prison can come to Jesus. The ones in prison, sorry, bud, you missed your chance. That's why prison ministry is so great. Because people are locked up for the rest of their lives. And you know, they know there's no escape in this life. And they can say, you know what, though? If I repent and come to Jesus, I can be free. I'm not free right now on this earth. I'm behind bars, but I can be free for eternity. There are hundreds and thousands of men and women coming to Jesus in prisons because they know what it's like to be enslaved behind bars because of their life, and yet God is setting them free. And when those guys come out and they preach, oh, get out of the way. They know what it's like to be enslaved to sin. Jesus came to set us free. But this is the heart of the Christian message, isn't it? On the cross, this is, this is where it gets really good. You ready? On the cross, this is where God's justice and God's love meet. On the cross. God's justice and God's love meet here. So I want us to stand because we know the story doesn't end just with Jesus dying on the cross. As we read earlier, it, it continues with Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And you know, today's Easter Sunday, and we titled this series Gospel of Power because we want you to know that it's actually really powerful. This good news I'm about to read is going forth all over the world. In Matthew 28, this is the morning, Sunday morning. Friday night, Jesus, he, he died on the cross, and what happened was some of his followers said, hey, we don't want him hanging up there after sundown because we don't want that to happen. And so they went and asked, can we take him down? They gave him permission to take them down. And they took him and they, and they wrapped him up in some <clears throat> linens and some spices because of his dead body. And they said, hey, we're going to go bury him in this tomb. So they go to this tomb. And you know, the tombs at the time aren't grave sites like us where you dig them in the ground. They actually put you like in the side of a mountain where there's rock and they kind of dug it out and they would put you there. And so they put him in this tomb. But you know, some of the Pharisees who were the Jewish religious leaders who were really against Jesus in the first place, they said, hey, we're suspicious that some of his followers are going to go get him out of this dead body and like walk on the street saying, look, he's alive, because they said he's going to come back to life. And so we want to prevent that. So they go to the Romans, hey, can you guys stand guard to do something? They said, okay. So they posted some centurions, some like trained Navy SEAL-like Roman guards standing by that tomb. And only that, they took several men, then take this huge stone, they rolled it across it. They couldn't be moved by any one or two or three people rolled it across with these centurions standing there saying, we're going to stand guard so no one gets close. And if anyone gets close, we're going to kill them. That was on Saturday. The guards are standing there. No one's coming close. You're part of the believers crowd, disciples. You're weeping, sorrowful. I thought Jesus was going to redeem us. I thought he was going to rescue us. What happened? He's dead. Everything he said, what happened? But a few of them remembered. A few of them knew, hold on, he said on the third day he'll rise. Did he really mean that? So that Sunday morning, which is today for us, we celebrate. The sun rose. It says the stone was rolled away. And in Matthew 28, 1 through 10, this is what we read. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. 
and he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus, when he came out of the tomb, you know what he said? He said, guys, this is not where it ends. This is the new beginning. The chain of events that happened from that day about 2,000 years ago culminated into this. Those disciples, they heard the news, they first doubted, and then Jesus showed up and appeared to them through a wall, like, whoa! And he's got scars, and like, is this really you? People doubted, he said, this is me. For 40 days, he revealed himself to hundreds of people all over the area. He said, guys, I'm alive. And then he left, and he said, hey, guys, now I'm going to send you guys the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to come with you, and he's going to help you, and you guys are about to go tell this story, this good news to people all over the world. You ready? They signed up. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Then it went into the, into the Middle East, and little churches started to emerge. And Paul and Peter wrote some letters back to them in Corinth and Ephesus and Rome and different places. And then it continued and continued to spread this movement and people tried to suppress it and kill people and people were martyred and were imprisoned for their faith and then it kept spreading though because you can't kill it once it started. And so, and then, and then it spread to Asia Minor and into Greece and into Europe and we know into Africa and into Asia and we had the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and a revival happening across Europe where cities were being holistically transformed. In Africa where tribes and nations, they were worshiping other gods, they started turning their hearts to Jesus. And then that gospel message made it over way to our country. By the way, the Puritans and pilgrims and others and the first and second great awakening and all of a sudden you had revival happening where you had streets filled with drunkards and wife beaters and people neglected their children and cheated and stole. People turning back to God, giving back, owing like all these Ikea stories of just, we're going to give back, we're going we're to help, we're going to serve. Revival started sweeping across our land. Churches started being established in different towns and cities. They became the center focus of the town. The town said, look, we're not even a town without a church. Then the message came to South America. People started turning their hearts to Jesus. If you go to Brazil right now, it is wild and wacky. These people are on fire for God. Crazy stuff has happened, and he is on the move. And then it made its way over to China, and the communist regime tried to suppress it. It tried to kill and kick out every missionary in the 50s. And the God was like, you can do whatever you want, but I'm still going to win. And so now there's hundreds of millions, we don't even know how many, that are in China. I mean, it's crazy. There's probably more Christians in China than are in America. But you would know, but they're following Jesus, and they're hardcore, and they're obedient, and they're going for it. And now they're spreading into Mongolia and in the Middle East, and you think, oh, the Middle East, oh, it's dangerous, right? There's people, no one knows God there. That's wrong. There are movements of Christians happening in some of the most hardest countries that you could list out that God is on the move. There are people being baptized at the heart of Islam. In India, a country ruled by Hinduism, there are people coming to faith in Jesus because they've seen there is a real God that loves us, that forgives us, that came down to earth. Not these gods that are distant, that just judge us, but they actually want relationship with us. This message started 2,000 years ago. Ain't it over yet, but it's getting close. Can I encourage you with something? What these guys didn't know at the time is there'd be a little invention called GPS one day. And that GPS actually allows you to actually see every square inch of the earth. And today, right now, 
there are missions organizations that actually have access to every single people group on the planet. Those that live in the jungle, we actually know where they are because we can see them from a satellite now. We know where they all are. And actually right now, there is a worldwide effort with Christians and missionaries from all over the world that have pulled together their data and resources, and they have set a new goal that by 2020, their goal is to actually have people in place, church planters available to be sharing the gospel with every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's in two years. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to happen like clockwork. It's going to be a lot of sacrifice. But you know what? Mary, who saw Jesus that day, went and told the disciples she was the first in a chain of events. Now, culminated to you being here. And if you don't know Jesus, you just came today, you can join that group, join that family. But that's what God's doing. That's why we're here celebrating on Easter. It's not because we just want to have fun or just get together. It's because there is a Jesus that was dead, came back to life, who took on the wrath for me, you, and your friends, and your future children, your existing children, if they would yet just put their faith in him. That's what he says. That's what we're celebrating. That's good news. And Jesus said right here, do not be afraid. So church, don't be afraid. I don't care what political power, what military thing, what culture says, what TV says. Do not be afraid. Go. Tell my brothers. And there they will see me. You know what Jesus promises, guys? If we won't be afraid, then go tell our brothers and sisters, they'll see him. That's his promise to us. Our part of the bargain is to go. That they'll see him. And even if we don't go, they'll see him. People are encountering Jesus in dreams in the, middle of the night. They see a man in white. They don't know what to do. They're drawn to him, and they go find someone who knows about men in white and their dreams, and all of a sudden they say, hey, this is Jesus, and he's calling you to forgive and repent and change. That's what Easter's about. So if you're here this morning again, and you don't know Jesus, we want to invite you as we worship. Just a simple prayer. You can say, Jesus, I want you to take on God's wrath for me. Take the wrath. Take my sin. I'm responsible. I want to be free. I want to run after you. If you already know Jesus, we're just going to worship him. We're going to celebrate him because God has made it so clear. He doesn't want anything else replacing him. He's to be the centerpiece of our lives. So we're going to celebrate Jesus is alive, not dead. Amen? So, Father, we thank you. We love you. And we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he's alive and well. We thank you that, Jesus, you're on the move. You're working in us, through us, and around us. You're even meeting people right now in this room. You're encountering people right now with your power, with the gospel power that came through your life. Lord, we ask you to move in our midst right now. Would you change us? Would you allow us to come to a place of celebrating you and putting you in the first place again? In Jesus' name.